Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Cut the Shit, a podcast series that aims to take a closer look at the impact of the IT industry, both the good and the bad. Cut the Shit is brought to you by Plow Networks, a managed IT services company based just outside Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Brian Link, EVP of Products and Services here at Plow, and I'll be your host for this series. I'll ask questions, and with the help of our guests, try to dig deep on some of the key challenges we all face dealing with IT. So with that, let's cut the shit and get started. On today's episode, we're going to do something a little different. Last Wednesday, we hosted the first installment of our in-person Cut the Shit events for our customers and partners. This was the first event like this we've done in a very long time, and it was a lot of fun. As part of that event, I had the pleasure of moderating a panel discussion on the business side of cybersecurity risk management. We called the panel, Securing Your Business Without Going Crazy or Broke, and we thought the discussion was good enough to share with our podcast listeners. So without further ado, please enjoy this recording of our Cut the Shit 2022 panel discussion. I'm your moderator. My goal today is pretty simple. You know, I want to guide this discussion in a way that's hopefully insightful around cybersecurity that maybe other discussions you've been part of, or certainly webinars, uh, are not. And, and what that means to me is, we're, you know, we're going to talk, the discussion is not going to be about the technology side of cybersecurity. It's gonna focus on the business questions and issues surrounding protecting the assets of your company from cyber attacks. And cyber attacks, you know, that sounds like the North Koreans or the Russians, and don't get me wrong, that's maybe part of it, but I mean, truthfully, the biggest issues we have now come from within our own organizations. And we'll get into that some uh, in the context of this discussion. Um, so, you know, in the spirit of our podcast, uh, the name of our podcast, which is called Cut the Shit, that's why we named the event this. We wanted to try to cut the shit around cybersecurity and really get into the business issues themselves rather than, I won't say getting distracted by the technology, but it's easy to, to kind of to go quickly to a technology solution rather than keeping a focus on what are the particular problems and how do you think about those problems and approach them. Um, at, at Plow, we pretty much you know, live by the mantra that technology and technology services are just tools to solve business problems. They're not ends in themselves. It doesn't mean that the technology doesn't matter, but at the same time, we feel like those are things that need to be figured out after you've made a, had a very good, you've really gotten a good clear idea of what problem it is that you're trying to solve. So with that, let's, uh, let's get to it. Uh, I'm going to introduce the panel. Um, I'll go right to left. Uh, so starting on my far right, David Branscombe is a cloud security architect in the Global Partner Solutions team at Microsoft, training partners to ensure they can design, deploy, and manage Microsoft security technologies in 365, Windows, and Azure. Uh, next to him, uh, Dante DiGiambro-Dorino. He's with us from Coalition, uh, a company specializing in cybersecurity insurance. Uh, and he's been with them since January of this year, and recently completed his CompTIA Security Plus Cert. With a background in risk management insurance, he spent the first 10 years of his career managing the technical advice, product expertise, and comprehensive review of clients' risk to negotiate the best terms, conditions, coverage, and pricing. So we've got cybersecurity insurance in the house. Uh, next to him, Alex Fuchs. Alex currently serves as field cybersecurity advisor with Fortinet, uh, and he was formerly the VP of IT at the paper store retail chain. Uh, where he implemented Fortinet. So he's another one who was a customer who then moved over to a vendor, um, like myself. Alex has over a decade of experience managing diverse technology teams and verticals ranging from retail to healthcare. Uh, next to him is Kristen Chambers, who has promised that she will sing uh, if we need her to. So I always appreciate you know, flexibility in my panelists. 
Um, Kristen currently serves as the manager of channel accounts for Jamf. She has a successful history in security, particularly mobile security. Uh, she's invested her time understanding the entry points for potential threats, the diagnosis of gaps in security, and the overall business impact of an antiquated or one-size-fits-all approach to security. And then lastly, uh, to my near right here is uh, Frank Platt. Frank's an advisor, cyber, cyber defense strategist, and enterprise security architect at InfoSec Alliance. He has provided risk and security consulting and educational services across the U.S. and around the globe for over 20 years. So, as you can see, we've got, um, we've got some credentials here in front of us, and so I'm gonna step just to the side just a bit because the focus is on them, not me. I've broken the questions into a couple different categories, and we wanna start off kind of at a high level in terms of how to think about security risks. And so the first question I wanna ask uh, specifically for Frank and Dante, um, what are the critical areas for a company to make sure are handled when it comes to security? And let's keep it with our theme, let's cut the shit, let's keep it simple, let's not get too deep, but let's think about the key areas uh, that we need to think about first and foremost. So um, from an insurance standpoint or insurability underwriting perspective, top things would be segmented backups, EDR, and MFA, email, remote access, and admin and privileged users? Well, uh, I think, you know, cyber risk is something I have focused on for many, many years. And, and I have to say that, that everything begins with a risk, and insurance guys understand risk. Um, I don't know if too many other people, maybe HR, we got anybody from HR that understands risk, nobody from HR, okay? But let me, let me start I'll, I'll cut the shit by saying one thing. The, 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 the number one principle in risk management is you don't spend more money on an asset than what the asset is worth. Let me repeat that. You don't spend more money on an asset than what the asset is worth. And, and that's something I think that a lot of people in security lose the fact of. Right? So, so where do you start with that? Well, you gotta understand where the jewels of the company lie. Where are they? And if you understand what they are and where they are, where they lie, then, then you might be able to begin understanding the whole element of how does a company make sure its risks are addressed. And by saying lie, where they, how are they accessed, how are they transmitted, and how are they stored. And those are the three critical areas that in any risk assessment, when it comes to cyber risk, you have to understand those. But remember, you can't spend more money than what that value of that risk is or that asset is. I'm gonna switch up the order a little bit. Dante, I wanna come back to you. Um, you gave some specific areas of focus um, for a, a company to, to focus on in terms of managing risk. Given the nature of the change in cybersecurity insurance, and maybe talk a little bit about this in the context of this question, but is, is there a way for a company to be able to say that they are secure? Is that even possible? Okay, I'll, I'll answer that first, and the answer is just, no, I don't think that's, that's possible, right? So, so if you have to tell your CEO that, that's the answer. No, there's no, no. way to do that 100%. Um, you know, security and access are mutually exclusive, right? So we need people to access our systems and that reduces the security. So from a, going back to the insurance standpoint, are we secure enough to get insurance? Yes, there are a lot of things you can do to increase you know, different services, vendors, um, products, technologies, removing open RDP ports, right? That would be a great example of... Um, having MFA. Yes, having MFA to reduce 
just the, the insurance spend, and from an underwriting perspective, I can say, you know, I feel comfortable writing this, and I feel comfortable that they're not going to have a an attack on my book, right, or a loss on my book. And as everybody in this room knows, the game has changed dramatically from a cybersecurity as it relates to cybersecurity insurance in the past. I guess three years, three to five, uh, for sure. Absolutely. Um, just, I mean, the fundamental, just the requirements alone have gone up drastically, right? Be before, I think probably early 2018, insurance was, cyber insurance was extremely cheap. Um, we've seen a lot of threat actors, um, cyber attacks, ransomware demands going up, you know, tenfold from anywhere, you know, used to be under 100,000 to now 300 to $400,000 for an average ransom uh, payment. Why has it gotten so ugly? That yeah, sounds it's, like, it's, sounds it's like that's why. Yeah, right. so these, right? the, these are you've paid out more claims than you've taken in premiums, correct? Exactly, justifying the rates, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the story around cybersecurity insurance is bleak. If, you're, if, if you think, well, we've got cybersecurity insurance, so we're okay, right? And that probably wasn't true even when it was cheap, but it's definitely not true now. Um, and I, I've had, we've had customers say, you know, we can't afford cybersecurity insurance. And, you know, the answer I always try to give them is, okay, that, that's, that's a business decision for you to make, but you, you already manage, you're, you're either assuming that risk yourself or you're trying to transfer a part of it to somebody else. I mean, the risk is still there. It doesn't really matter whether you have cybersecurity insurance or not. That's, that's after the fact, right? It's in the same way that if you drive a car, there's a chance you're going to have a wreck. You don't have to have, well, legally you do, but you don't really have to have auto insurance, but you could still have a wreck, right? You're just basically assuming the, the liability if you don't have insurance. So I think that's, you know, I, it's kind of an ugly game out there. No offense, Dante, but it's, it's, it's a lot more painful to deal with cybersecurity insurance now than it used to be. But we don't want to spend too much time on that because that's, that's another, and you can feel free to talk to Dante after if you've got specific questions about your coverage or lack thereof. Um, when we think about categorizing security risk, so let's trans transition a little bit to Frank's uh, comment about risk and thinking about it. Is it helpful or useful to take a perspective of thinking about security risks from, in, in terms of categorizing them as inside-out risks versus outside-in? And if, if, if so, tell me why, and if not, that's fine too. Alex, let's start with you, and then we'll go to David next. So I think that's a very easy trap to fall into of categorizing risk as inside versus outside. And somehow, you know, having that risk being inside somewhat being regarded as less than an outside threat. I think that's it's a very easy, you know, sort of trap door to fall into. And, and certainly one that, um, that a lot of folks that we've worked with have encountered over the years. Well, you know, that's inside. I'm not really going to focus on resources there. The, the reality is, as we've transitioned people to work from home, we've added in things like BYOD. What we've done is just increase the attack surface the overall environment. And the easy trap to fall into there is somehow weighing inside versus outside threats any differently than each other. Really what you want to work towards now is this concept of zero trust. So I trust all devices the exact same way, which is I don't trust them at all until I can validate them and verify the posture. That's really the, the reality that we're trying to move to. And that dovetails into a principle that we've all exercised for years, which is least privilege. I'm going to grant the least amount of access to a user and to a device as that user or device needs to accomplish its core function. So someone in HR maybe doesn't need access to the financial records, for example, or somebody in finance doesn't need necessarily access to things on the operational side. It's making sure that every user is in their correct lane and isn't given anything above and beyond what they need to do their job. And we see this a lot now with folks that have outside auditors coming in. 
And this is an activity that historically um, everybody in this room has dealt with at some point or another, right? You've had an outside of your financial audit or security or IT audit come in, and you have to give these folks limited access to your environment. I'm just curious, how many people by a show of hands in this room have a great way to manage third-party vendor or auditor access to their environment? Anybody feel really comfortable about how they're doing that right now? Yeah, that's kind of my point. So we have this, this trap door to fall into, well, if it's an inside device, if it's a corporate issue device, I should somehow feel safe. Um, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of people uh, basically had to go from roles where they were in the building all the time, right? That's a really easy device to manage. That's a really easy device to posture check. I know what that user is. I know where it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to be doing. The minute we sent everybody home, it's basically without a plan because we didn't have a choice, we gave up that control. That, that device is now interfacing with an untold number of, of home devices on their home network. Um, in my, uh, my former life as um, you know, head of IT for a retailer, I had um, multiple users that would bring devices home and a family member's device or a spouse's device would get compromised, which would then expose their device they were bringing back into our environment. You lose all that aspect of visibility control the minute that device leaves the premise, so you have to manage that. So I think to kind of circle back to your question, frankly, cut the shit a little bit, um, that, that idea of inside versus outside is a 10-year-old idea at this point, best case. Really, we have to treat everybody the same. Fair enough. And from that perspective, what it, it, may be, it may be outdated, but when we talk about, you mentioned devices, and we talk, also talk about identities a lot, how do you make a distinguish, or, and David, maybe I'll just kick this to you, do you, when, and from Microsoft's perspective, do you guys make a distinction between identity and device, or are those somehow bound together, or maybe not one-to-one, -one, but one-to-many in that concept as we think about this inside-out versus outside-in conception? Yeah, so, so when you talk about something like conditional access, you're, you're analyzing the identity, how they're authenticated, but you're also looking at the device itself. Is the device joined to Azure AD? Is it joined to uh, your on-premise AD? Is it a, a bring-your-own device? And then what's the health of that device? What application are they trying to get to? So there's a whole bunch of different factors that you're going to be looking at um, before you just make the decision, yeah, you're allowed or no, you're not allowed. And, and you know, kind of when I think about the, the, the question that you, that you asked there about inside out, outside in, um, it's also a little bit of a, uh, a question of how you're going to architect things. So if you're looking at it from the outside in, your, your starting point is, you know, the network, right? The firewalls, the, the, right. the, the stuff on the edge. If you, start, if you go inside out, you're looking at things that, that maybe ordinarily you wouldn't look at from an, inside, or from an outside in perspective. You're looking at, is the source code secure? Is the application architected correctly? Is your server infrastructure architected correctly? So um, it's, it's a more thorough way of, uh, of designing things to, to go inside out. But I don't think you can do really one or the other. It has to be a combination of those things. Um, the last thing I'll say there is um, if you design only from outside in, you could be missing some vulnerabilities. So for example, if you've got insider risk that, that, that you have to take care of, how is that addressed from, from outside in, right? If you're going outside in, you're, you're kind of looking at the bad guys on the outside, right? Nation states, threat actors, criminals, whatever. But some of those bad people are, are inside, and, and you know, are you able to, to detect movement of data onto a USB device? Are you able to cop, uh, uh, identify when they uh, print confidential information to a printer? Those types of things 
could get missed if you're only looking at it from the outside in. All right, and so it kind of brings me, we, I know the, the makeup of the room, there's a lot of folks who are in what we'd call regulated industries, healthcare, financial services, those kinds of things. And so Frank, when you think about, within, with, with, as these folks sit here and listen, and we think about the idea of being a regulated company, how much should regulation dictate the definition of secure? I mean, obviously regulation is a huge issue if you're a healthcare company, but where does, how useful is it in terms of helping you to think about your security posture, or is it something that you need to think about more broadly and then make sure that you're, that you're, you're, you're fitting in the line, so to speak? I first heard of uh, the question probably in 2008, is compliance security or security compliance? That question still rings everywhere. My observation is that if you have a compliance model that you're trying to secure, then you're going to be missing things in the organization in terms of assets. Because you might have a compliance department that wants to exclude certain things. And I'll give you a brief story, and I'll, and I'll cut to the shed, okay? Cut to the shed. Um, had a hospital in, in El Paso, Texas. Asked me to come in. The CISO, CIO had decided they needed a security program. And they had an evaluation of what they had going on. They had HIPAA. They'd been HIPAA audited and secured for however many long they had to be, right? So when I came in and I began looking at things, one of the things we found was that there was a device that was actually calling China every night at 2 a.m. in the morning. And when we brought in the, the HIPAA security team and asked them what that device was, they go, well, we know about that device. It's over in the imaging department. And because the imaging department is excluded from our HIPAA compliance, we've told them about it, but we don't have any capability of telling them to do anything. Right? So the cutting to the shit right there, the CEO basically said, forget the HIPAA stuff. Let's get a security program in place that we can understand we're doing the due diligence, due care, due care, due diligence, and then we'll make sure that we map out the HIPAA compliance into that security program and the framework that is, that's under, whether it's NISC or ISO or whatever framework you want to use. So cutting to the shit, compliance is not security. So Frank was on his soapbox there. It's always good. Glad we, glad we got there. Um, it, took, it took 15 minutes. I thought we'd get there faster. Um, but, but here we are. Um, I, I did. I knew what I was getting myself into. And I know what I'm getting myself into here because we're going to bring Kristen to the table for this next question. So it should, should, should take a turn for the fun. Um, this next section, I want to talk a little bit about sort of techniques for maintaining security. We talked some about how to think about these things. Um, but let's, let's transition a little bit. And, and Kristen and David both, um, since David kind of brings the Microsoft perspective, and Kristen with Jamf brings more of a Mac approach, and therefore iOS is a big part of what they do. Um, how much trouble is mobility generally, but, but specifically mobile devices, how much trouble are mobile devices causing from a security perspective? And is there something unique about that, or is it just a part of a broader issue? Yeah, so I, I'm speaking for more of a previous life than, than with Jamf. Yes, of course, we handle Mac and Apple devices, but I come from a big, huge mobility company. And um, one, of the, one of the biggest issues we found is that uh, organizations treated wireless or like mobile devices different than they did with the devices within their four walls, but they had the same access. You're accessing applications, you're accessing email, you're accessing 
And I would liken it to probably being worse. These small screens where you're doing really reactive things, you're acting very quickly. And one of the things that it does is it not only makes your organization vulnerable from all of the information that can be accessed on those devices, it makes their personal proprietary information vulnerable. How many stories have you heard where I clicked on that link, I put in my Chase uh, login credentials, and not only do they have access to all the other things that I use the same login credentials for, but now they have access to all my work stuff because I use the same login credentials there. Uh, I have story after story after story to share where something as simple as, hey, you could put this on your device for the low, low cost of X and make sure you don't run into this issue. Now nah, I don't need it. I don't want to be big brother. I don't want to manage these devices. I, I have these employees who feel like any type of MDM or acceptable use policy will cripple our business, so I'm not doing it, only to find out they get hit with a million dollar Bitcoin ask to get all their customer data back. And so you cannot treat that device any differently. And it's interesting because I think sometimes our devices give us a false sense of security. You hear all the time, hey, I unboxed this device and, and Apple tells me it's secure and Samsung tells me it's secure and the fact of the matter is, is it rides on a network, it has applications, it has things on it that are not managed and monitored by that device. And so you just, what, I think all of us, what, we do 70% 70 70 of what we do is on our devices? How many times have people clicked on the little from in your email to see who it's from on your mobile device? Or do you just say, let me respond to this guy? Or God forbid you have an employee who had too many beers and like clicked on the link in the email and then that talking about you, Brian, you did that. I heard you, I know. <laughs> your job is to protect people from that. Wow. The lucky wow. you did it yourself. Uh, but you can't- I wasn't expecting that. differently, right? And, and, and it's, it's another infiltration point. And the more we grow in technology, the more infiltration points you're gonna get. And, and that's what's important when it comes to cybersecurity and why it's constantly changing. But yes, mobility is a huge factor, probably more so than it ever has been and will continue to grow if people don't learn how to protect it appropriately. And so to that point, David, what, and, and from Microsoft's perspective, how are you guys thinking about that, that evolution, particularly what's happened in the past couple of years with so many people going remote? I mean, there's the, the mobile device, you know, that form factor specifically, but there's a broader issue, mobility writ large. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, is, is mobile devices are one thing. Mobility, remote work, hybrid work, that's, that's a, a different set of problems, right? So, so you can secure mobile devices with, you know, like, like a jam for whatever, um, Intune. But you also have to figure out how do you secure the human? And that's what Alex was talking about, right? How do you, how do you make sure that when the person takes this laptop home, and this was a problem that, that every organization saw during COVID was you take the laptop home, your kid doesn't have a laptop, but he has to do his, his homework from school, and he decides he's gonna play games on your laptop, your work laptop, he downloads some goofy thing, and, and you know, then, then work is calling you saying what's going on. So we really have to figure out um, the, you know, kind of the, the, the sweet spot between making every device completely fully managed as if it's a corporate um, you know, owned device and you know, giving people the, the flexibility to, to have a, um, you know, a semblance of, of, of personal data on that device and, and still control uh, what they do uh, as far as corporate data. Yeah, and he brings up a good point, containerization of the data. You know, um, this, this concept ebbs and flows of BYOD. 
Some corporations say, oh, we're on BYOD now. And no, psych, we're not corporate-owned devices. Back to BYOD. Let's bring in personal and corporate. We're not properly containing the data. What's to say I can't take a screenshot on my laptop or a screenshot on my phone and send it over to this guy? Or how am I properly sending files back and forth? And how have we made it easy for our employees to do that in a secure way internally and externally? And oh, by the way, sorry, I took this and I do want everyone to donate here, but these little things, these little guys, remember how we got rid of menus? And we said, you get to go to a restaurant, but you get this little guy, take a picture. I can put code on this right here. And all of you could take a picture. And I could put a little thing that said, gotcha, I have all your information now. That's what you have access to all the time. So new things like this pop up, where now you're thinking you're scanning a menu, but you're scanning code that's going to download it on your phone. And it's scary. You think, like, what is not going to That QR code does not have any code on it. It, it does not. This is only donation. <laughs> Please use it, I think. I I'm 95% sure. You thought I was on the soapbox. <laughs> There's my soapbox, to be frank, to be frank, pun intended. All right, so we've talked a lot about, I mean, particularly here around, you know, monitoring, managing, you know, how do you, staying on top of these kinds of, you know, having a lot of programs in place to monitor people and devices, right? And that's the, you don't really have a choice, right? Realistically, that's the game if you want to be, try to be secure in this world, both from an inside out or outside in perspective around people and devices. With that in mind, assuming a company implements a plan to secure these areas, how should they go about monitoring and staying on top of it? Because that, what you just described sounds like a lot of work. So Alex, I'll let you go first. And you can maybe reference back to retail, to, to, to the, the paper store experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's a great point. So I think a lot of organizations um, you know, around that size, that mid-market, mid mid-enterprise um, mid size, are kind of falling into this, this really tough spot. You know, the asks for cybersecurity programs now are huge, right? Organizations don't have the resources, even if you have the budget to go out and hire a proper cybersecurity team, you probably can't. You probably can't find these people because there's not enough of them out there. Um, so, you know, what, what is a small organization or mid-sized organization going to do to address that? Um, so, you know, back in, in my tenure at, um, at Paper Store, when I was hired, um, right at the beginning of my tenure, I was the third guy on the technology team for an organization supporting 60 stores and 3,500 employees. And I'd love to tell you that that's an outlier, but that's the game. That is, you know, I, I don't have to preach that to you guys. Everybody sitting in this room knows exactly what I'm talking about. So by the time I left, we had 10 people plus three guys offshore, fully managed network operations center, security operations center. And basically what we did is we got broader shoulders. If you can't do it all yourself, sometimes you have to look outside your four walls and start bringing in some trusted third parties to help you out. Uh, it's not on you to kind of own all that by yourself. And I think realistically, even if you're a bigger organization with an endless budget, you don't necessarily want to own it by yourself. You don't want to ask your team to go on a you know, forever on call rotation to answer that 6 a.m. or 2 a.m. cybersecurity incident call. You want to have somebody else to take that first pass, take a first pass of remediation that's there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, you know, I'll take my coordinate hat off for a minute. We leveraged uh, Dell SecureWorks. Everybody here has probably heard of those guys. Um, if you're not familiar with them, they're the ones that bailed Target out when they had a massive data breach. So they're, they're pretty well known in the industry. And I'd love to tell you that I ran a clean shop for the four years I was there. We got hit. Not once, twice, three times, but four times altogether. As many steps as you take to try to prevent stuff like that from happening, it's not if it's when. I don't mean when it happens. I mean when you find out that it's happened. 
Um, the reality of the situation is everybody here has some exposure. You probably have stuff out there floating around right now, information about your organization that's either public or for sale that you probably don't even know about. Um, we had a customer back on the Fortinet side uh, that was a hospital. So we're up and down, we're secure, we have a SOC, we have a network operations center, we've got people watching the watchers. You know, we're covered six ways from Sunday. So that's great. How come our, our recon tool here says that you have about 600,000 patient records available for sale? Oh yeah, we know about that. That was a breach two years ago. Well, this data is dated six months ago. So they've been hit and they had no idea they've been hit. So it's not if, it's when, and it's when you find out that it's happened. You've got to have those broad shoulders. You've got to have multi-tiered um, you know, process and program in place, but it doesn't all have to be you. It doesn't have to be all your team. And we've got great partners here like Cloud that can help kind of shoulder some of that weight. Oh, thanks. You stole my thunder. Yeah. It's, and it's true, you know, you want a partner that's going to be able to develop a program that's customized the, the needs of your business. No one person in this room has the same problems. No one person in this room has the same architecture as the next person down the table. So there's no such thing as one size fits all cybersecurity. That's where I'll leave it. Frank, I want to call a little bit, a little audible and ask you to follow up on that and talk a little bit about some of the, where have you seen people do a good job of saying, we're going to do this inside and we're going to partner with someone outside? Where, where have you seen people do that well? And maybe the opposite, where have people, you feel like they've fallen short? I think from a, if I look at it from a technical perspective, that's what we're talking about, somewhat technical, and I'll come back, administrative actually as well. Uh, from a technical perspective, if, if you are managing your Active Directory, for example, you want somebody from the outside to come in and audit your Active Directory. You don't need internal auditors, unless you're a big organization that internal audit reports to a totally different department out there. So if you're mid-sized, you better have somebody come in outside to manage it. So anything that you think you're doing a separation of duty from my perspective is having somebody come in and look over your shoulder and you having the, the moxie to be able to say, I'm gonna person up here, no man's planning, right? I'm gonna person up here and I'm gonna have a third party independent group come out and look at my program to tell me, ask me or show me or at least offer some suggestions, right? If I go to application development, and I'm not an app dev person, believe me, that's probably the least of my uh, knowledge base, right? But when I'm doing application development, I better have somebody looking over the shoulder of my application developers. Now, cybersecurity, what they call it, the department of no, they hate it, right? But what's worse, having somebody say, well, have you looked at that and spending a little more time making sure that that has been done? Or waiting till somebody has breached that container and then taking your 20,000, you know, probably the same hospital, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope that's the answer you're looking for. Well, I have just something quick to add there, too. Don't discount the value of vulnerability scans as well. I mean, the, the, the luxury of cybersecurity evolving as quickly as it is, you got a bunch of smart people out there building all sorts of bots and things that you can do relatively inexpensively to say, I, I found a big problem, and you need to patch it quickly. You need to do something about this now. 
Um, and being in cybersecurity sales for as long as I have, I just wish I would have had a tool to say like, oh, you don't want to buy my stuff, it's fine, because I sent you an email and you opened it and I found out you have 57 things you need to fix in your, in your uh, environment. But they have stuff like that, vulnerability scans, pen tests, things like that. And the challenge is, is small businesses, one breach takes your entire business down. So spending four grand on a vulnerability scan is nothing compared to the loss you could take. And having companies like, you know, Frank and Plow and everybody else around to help you be your eyes and, and be an external source, to Frank's point, is very, very important because you can be blinded by your own internal plans and infrastructure and, and device management, things like that. As a follow-up to that, Dante, is from an insurance perspective, not to always bring it back to that, but I'm always interested in that, are the insurance companies paying any attention to this kind of thing in terms of external monitoring, assurance, validation of programs or, or approaches? So we want to know it's being done. I'm not necessarily important to me whether it's being done internally or externally. Um, that would be the short answer. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I think Alex mentioned the idea of watching the watchers, and Frank obviously addressed that. But as we think about that, they, um, David, is, is Microsoft doing anything to make it easier for companies to not have to have multiple layers of eyes on things? I mean, is, is no. again, we said, <laughs> okay, well, that answers that question. Make, making it as complex as now. Yeah, I, I, was get, I, I was hoping that, that there was something on the, at least, we, 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 didn't, we weren't going to talk about technology, but the idea of, of finding, you know, let's face it, the, the, the deluge of information from monitoring systems yeah. is one of the biggest problems with cybersecurity monitoring and management, right? Is you can be overwhelmed. And it's the same problem we have with data in general, right? An explosion of data means the haystack is bigger, so where do you find the needle, right? It's the same, it's not really any different. It's a variation on a theme. I was just curious if there was anything going on with some of your smart folks to help make that problem a little simpler. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a problem that, that, that we've been chasing for a while. Right, I mean, even when everything was on-prem and you had SCOM or MOM or whatever, you always had these alerts that were just going off all over the place and everybody goes in and turns off all the alerts and then everything's quiet, so everything must be good, right? So, um, and, 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 and that same problem just kind of has moved up to the cloud, right? Um, so, so we're trying to make it so that, number one, uh, the alerts that are brought to a person's attention are valid alerts that um, need to be acted on. They're not just noise, um, but also bringing them up to your attention in such a way that it, they, they become actionable, right? So um, it's, it's one thing to, to, to have something happen in your network, to have uh, you know, a, a, a piece of malware on a machine or, or something like that. But if all you're doing is looking at individual events all over the place, it's hard to know where to start fixing it. What you need to understand is what's the context around those alerts? What is happening? Why is this uh, piece of malware in your environment? How did it get there? If you, if you get that string, you know, that red thread through, through the whole incident, then you can start figuring out, okay, where do I need to start fixing the problem? Did it enter through email? Did it enter through uh, you know, an, an authorized device on our network? You know, where did the problem come from? So yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to fix the problem, but um, the more devices that, that, that come into the environments, the more that are on the internet, That's fair. Uh, That's the fair. problem just keeps 
you know, yeah, you're, yeah, you're just it. chasing a, an ever-growing problem. And now a word from our sponsors. In today's complex digital world, your business is accelerating faster than ever. More people, more devices, more data, and more places than ever. Creating a more complex and rapidly evolving threat landscape, every company needs to be prepared to protect every edge, in every space, against every threat, on any cloud. Protect what matters most with Fortinet. Digital security everywhere you need it. Jamf Trusted Access brings together the best of device management, user identity, and endpoint protection to only allow network access to trusted and secured devices. Trusted Access thwarts attackers and makes it effortless for end users and IT. With more than 20 years of Apple experience, an unmatched reputation for same-day Apple OS support, and a complete security and management platform, Jamf is the answer for every Apple device. Jamf provides an experience that users love and that organizations trust with enterprise secure and consumer simple solutions that protect the privacy of end users. To learn more, visit www.jamf.com. And now let's get back to the show. Um, last question on this, let's transition just a bit to everybody's favorite and that's cybersecurity training. Um, it's always been, it's employees' favorite. It's what they look forward to most um, throughout the year is the, is the cybersecurity training exercise that uh, they're forced to do as a, as a compliance ex exercise usually. Um, but I, there are companies out there who are really putting a lot of effort into this to try to make this something that's actually helpful. And so I'm just curious to know, um, you know, I know, Alex, you said you had, a, you had a, uh, an experience with this. And so would like to maybe talk about that from your, from your purview. So that, that's, that's a really great uh, scenario I'm going to talk through briefly. So for a while, I worked at a, a small micro-mobility startup that was doing bike and scooter share. If you've seen little uh, scooters that you can rent with uh, you know, pretty much anywhere around the city, sort of one of those types of scenarios. And I went to our CEO to request budget for some basic cybersecurity awareness training. I think the ask was about $10,000, somewhere in that, in that ballpark. So not huge, given a couple hundred person company. And it was going to do both the training as well as um, periodic testing of the users, right? So trust but verify kind of scenario. And he said, you know, I don't, I don't really think we can justify that in the budget. So I went out, I found a free tool, and I unannounced tested the entire environment. Um, our CEO had a pretty well publicized writing style. So one of those very blustery, hey team, you know, thanks for all the hard work kind of guys, give everybody an attaboy and a, and a pat on the back kind of, kind of things. And I wrote an email posing as him to the entire organization who were a G Suite shop. Um, and I attached a, uh, basically a link to a Google Doc that was going to outline, you know, Q4 bonuses, I think is what I labeled it. Uh, anyone want to take a stab in the dark? How many people not only opened the email, but then clicked on the link and gave me their G Suite credentials? 100%. You're very close, about 85%. <laughs> um, you know, every, you dangle a nice juicy target out there, you keep it short and sweet. And I think the more interesting metric, going back to mobile device management, was about 45% of the people that clicked were doing so from a mobile device. They didn't scrutinize who that email was coming from. It just had a very, you know, generic, it was, you know, uh, no reply at, you know, name of the company dot whatever dot com, right? So it, if you took two seconds to look at it, you would have realized it was coming from a, a nefarious source. 
needless to say, I got the budget, we got the solution, <laughs> and we started doing periodic testing. And this is the part that I think is most interesting. Everybody moans and groans about doing the training regimen and kind of rolling it out to the environment. People aren't going to do this. They're going to just kind of glaze right over. Check the box. Yeah. Exactly, right? Uh, but we went from 85% of the organization clicking on a link like that to less than 3% in 90 days. So, you know, talking about what a, what a giant turnaround you can do there, um, it really doesn't take much. It was a total of two 30-minute courses that they had to take written by Kevin Mitnick. So for those in the room that know who he is, um, you know, probably one of the best social media engineering, or um, not social media engineering, but social engineering folks out there. He's famous for walking into telephone companies, posing as an employee, getting access to restricted infrastructure, um, did some consulting work for the FBI after he got caught. He designed these programs and two 30 minute courses once a year, and we were able to knock that down well over 80%. Um, my more recent role at the paper store, we ended up you know, just prior to me leaving about 5,500 overall employees, 125 sites, same problem. I got the initial budget, did a blind test, sent that to the whole organization, a little bit better, about 55% uh, of the organization clicking through, providing credentials, opening, you know, compromising attachments. And then again, same thing, but much better results, down to less than 1% inside of 120 days. So the lift is not high, the spend is not significant, and the results that it can provide are, are pretty astounding. Um, and obviously, it's not an isolated instance if I was able to do that across a couple organizations in a few years. You know, these are very reproducible results. They're not expensive or difficult tools. Anybody in this room can leverage them. Uh, and I would highly encourage everybody to do so. So in terms of bang for the buck, this may be the best dollar you could spend. I, I would agree. And I would, I would defer to my esteemed colleague from the insurance industry to back me up on that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I think the statistics about 94% of claims that we see and start with a, an employee clicking something, opening an email. So it, employee training is very valuable. Your biggest security risk is humans. Yes. I, I would say the most dangerous person in my, in my tenure at the paper store was the executive assistant to the CEO. Yeah. She opened and clicked on absolutely everything. <laughs> All right, on that note, um, we're going to transition to our last section here. We're going to talk a little bit about the business side of security. And I know we said we're going to talk about the business of it. But when I'm talking here, I mean more either the financial aspects or sort of the internal selling and management of programs, right, as it relates mostly up the, up the chain. So, you know, we're not going to stand up here and tell you how much you ought to be spending on cybersecurity because that's going to vary greatly depending on your organization. There's no, yes, you should spend 3% of your budget. I mean, that's a, that's a dumb that's a dumb thing for, if someone tells you that, you should probably put your hand on your wallet um, if you get that from somebody. Um, because that's, there's no way they, can, there's no way they can, can, can tell you that up front. So there's a bunch of different ways to sort of slice and dice it, but I thought what we would, I wanted to kind of go to the value question of security, of, of security risk management versus the cost. And so a question for, for Dante and maybe David as well, what are some smart ways you've seen companies attempt to measure the value of security risk management? If, if you haven't, that's yeah. fine, but have you seen anything interesting on that front? Everything comes down to return on investment, right? How much we spend and what are we getting back? Um, I think there's a lot of ways to, uh, to measure that. Anything that will reduce the cost to do business, right? So would facilitate um, more clients coming in the door, what does that mean? Do you have anything from certifications that was the ISO 27001 certification? Uh, things that will basically allow people to ease, the ease of doing business with you. That would be. 
David, how about on your side? Um, so the way I kind of think about it is very few companies are in business to secure themselves, right? Um, that's not a thing that, that, that businesses do. They're in business to, to make money. So there has to be a reasonable balance drawn between how much money you're going to spend to secure the, the environment and uh, what it would cost if, if, if you, uh, you know, failed to implement that, that piece of security. So, so how, do you, how do you manage um, the risk that, that, that's involved there and how, how do you decide how much money to spend? Um, a part of it goes back to, to what, uh, Brian, you were talking about, what, what you were talking about before. You know, are you going to transfer the risk? Are you going to ignore the risk? Are you gonna, you know, what, how are you going to handle this? Um, because there's a dollar amount associated with each of those decisions, right? If you're going to transfer the risk, that means you're, you're going to send it to a cyber insurance company, there's a cost. If you're going to ignore it, there's, there's a potential cost there too. It may not be much, right, because the risk may not be very high, but there is a cost. So as um, uh, Frank was saying, you have to figure out, you know, what is it you're trying to, to, to fix? What's the problem you're trying to fix? How much would not fixing it cost? And then find uh, you know, the, the, the nice balance in the solution uh, that you're going to implement so that you're not overspending to secure something that doesn't have that same value. And Krista, we talked about this a little bit before, but you know, this idea, if you think about security risk management, if you're talking to non-technical people, right, would you, you, know, you might have an interesting discussion about, is this an, is this an expense or an investment? And, and if that were the question, how would you think about that? How would you, how would you encourage them to think about it? I would say security is about as sexy as insurance. No offense, Dante, <laughs> cybersecurity insurance guy. Um, you never know what it's going to cost by not having it. Until you have a breach yourself, it's like it seems like it's a sunk cost. It seems like you're just outpouring money to not know what you get in return. And, and to be quite honest, until you have one of those breaches, you're like, oh, no, that would have been great to just to just spend a little bit of extra money to make sure I didn't find myself in this situation. And I would, I would ask you to sort of think about what your image means, you know, as an organization. Uh, that's collateral that is what we would consider kind of, um, you could say it's a soft cost, although people put lots of money around their brands, but image is everything. And just start there and say, what is my company worth? And if my customers are put in a position where I am disadvantaged and, and, and have put them in a position that will uh, cause them heartburn over just merely doing business with me because I didn't properly secure my organization, that's, that's, that's your business and you're under. You no longer have a business anymore. And so it's, it's definitely that important. It's definitely investment. It's definitely an expense too, um, but it's important. Yeah, I tend to think, I like the insurance analogy. I think that's useful to think about. It makes it tough to, to, to figure out, to your point. I mean, even Frank, I'll take Frank's point literally, which is understanding the value of your assets. But as Kristen points out, that's not always an easy exercise to do. Brand value, those types of things are not necessarily easily quantifiable. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try but it's difficult, um, it's difficult to do. So it still creates fuzziness if you're trying to explain to your CEO why you need to increase security uh, spend you know, 100% this year. Um, making, that, making that case is not a simple, a simple task at all. And I, and I would encourage you to push your vendors to help you make that case. 
right? That make them do their job and that help them help you uh, in terms of making that internal sales case. And, and to that, I want to get to the last question so we can get to, to, to the Q&A section. Um, and Alex and Frank, this one's for you guys to kind of wrap us up. Um, given the obvious money and time being spent on this stuff, what are rec recommendations for how all this should be reported and contextualized to senior leadership or the board? Okay, well, a couple of things. First of all, let me address risk. I want to come back to that. As an insurance company, what, we, what most of us probably have heard, but we really don't know what the inner working is, is called actuarial tables. Everybody's heard that term? All right, actuarial table understands risk. It looks at the annual loss expectancy, ALE, and the annual rate of occurrence. And then it puts two things on that. It puts a value of what could be lost, and it puts a value of how much the loss could be. So you, you have a, a quantitative and a qualitative, right? So if you have a company that you are needing to secure XYZ asset, going through that calculation for your CEO is something that he might not understand, but I promise you your CFL will because they're taught risk. They understand that risk calculation out there. So having said that, I'll get off my soapbox. But that, that understand, go look at that. They're in the risk tables out there. You, you got anybody, any CISSPs in the building? All right, if you go do a CISSP, that's one of the things they drill into you, that, that equation right there, all right? How do you report back to the board, all right? Well, if you have a program, and I'll, I'll be brief, I guess I can, how much time we got here? You got 20 seconds. I'm done. <laughs> and by the way, yes, this is your team. Just in case you were asking or wondering, I can't do it too often, but we're number one today. Okay. Um, so I look at an organization. When I get called into organization, generally it's because something has happened. Right? I mean, maybe the CEO lost his bonus because they had to go notify because some programmer didn't close the back door and they think they may have lost something, but no, it was really just a, a bunch of bots coming in announcing at uh, Adobe. Right? So generally there's something that has happened to an organization. When something has happened to an organization, to me, that's, when I get called into that, I look at that organization and I say, what framework have you put in place? You alluded to it earlier. All right? And there's, there's frameworks. And a framework that I work with most often, there's two of them. If you're an international company doing business overseas, the ISO model. Now to go through an ISO certification probably is gonna cost for the average business, small business, more than what the value of the assets are of the overall organization. If you're local or, or just doing business, the U.S. NIST, and I take every one of those performance indicators, controls as some people may want to call them, and I look at that as a risk indicator. And I will take that risk indicator and I will go through the organization. Everybody in the organization understands that they have a part of that, not just IT. IT understands that that's a box but they may not understand what the value of that box is or what it's doing. Uh, discussion earlier as we move to the cloud, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, AP person doesn't necessarily care where the technology is, they just want, the, they want payroll, right? So if I look at that and I go through every individual in the organization, I come up with these are the key risk indicators that are sitting in this organization based off of this, based off that framework, then I can develop a, a maturity matrix a scale of one to five, 
right? In that maturity matrix, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of ISACs. Anybody familiar with the ISACs, information sharing? Every, every industry vertical, like, like uh, uh, healthcare, has an ISAC to it. And those ISACs will publish certain matrices of what these indicators may look like and what they actually exist. So if I'm on a five, they're lying to you, all right? Nobody can get to five, that's perfect, right? But if, if my neighbor down the street is at a four in this area and a 3.3 at this area and a 2.8 at this area and what all the, wherever you put that, wherever your quantitative, qualitative risk assessments, throw that key risk indicator at, then you can show your CEO what his neighbors are doing, what his competition is doing. And when they say the competition, they want to be as least as good as the competition. And I'll take that one step further if I may. To understand how much you need to spend, you can take the highest risk and put it on a chart. You know, the, the up here is over there, down here is over here. And you can say, for me to implement multi-factor authentication for my uh, for my, my management accounts is going to cost this much for this year, and you can build out a two-year run rate so that that CEO now has an understanding of how much money they're going to be spending over the next two years, because that's a question that I get asked all the time. How much money do I need to spend? A good salesperson will say, well, how much money do you have to spend? <laughs> is that correct? But that's not necessarily the answer, is how much do I need to spend over a two-year period of time? I'm done. Alex, bring us home with a story. All right, I, I think I can manage that for you. So uh, I, I had the luxury of rolling up to our uh, COO of my last retail organization. And very straightforward, uh, straightforward shoot from the hip kind of guy. And uh, I remember coming in day one and saying, you know, listen, you know, department needs a little bit of money for a cybersecurity budget. I think at that point it was, you know, we didn't have anything kind of penciled in. And he said, okay, come back to me some numbers, let's figure it out. And what I realized is I'm kind of crunching the numbers on everything that I realized that we need because we had virtually nothing, because uh, there's no way he's gonna greenlight what I need to ask for, right? The reality of the situation is to get the perfect cybersecurity program is expensive. And you're not gonna get there all at once. It's kind of a um, you know crawl, walk, run model, if you will. And so what we did, and what I did with a lot of projects, is I tried to show um, you know like a five-year ROI on the investment, right? How is this going to uh, going to make sense? How am I going to roll it out over a period of time where the business is willing to absorb the cost and we're going to minimize or eliminate as much of our high priority risk items and exposure as we possibly can all front end? So just like Frank was alluding to, first place to start is make a list of all the things you think you need. Run that list by somebody else that doesn't work for your company, right? Go to a third party consultant, go to a cybersecurity organization, MSSP, or a managed service provider and get somebody else's advice to gut check what you think you need. Once you do that, you just rank those in order of, you know, biggest fire to smallest fire, right? And then you go and basically, the way I did it at least, was structured out over a three to five year rollout to make the numbers a bit more palatable to business. Then every year at your board meeting, come through and you give a status report. Hey, here's what we've done. Here's the risk that this is mitigated and what the potential exposure and liability would have been had we not mitigated that risk. So, um, you know, in our case, the first year we, we rolled out our SOC was the first year we had a cybersecurity incident. Well, it looks like that's paying right off, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I, I still remember getting the call at, you know, seven in the morning on a Saturday going, hey, we see some unauthorized activity on the SQL development box sitting in your Colo data center from Germany. We don't think you guys have anybody over there. 
we sure don't. <laughs> you know, where, what have they accessed? What account are they using? And this is just proof. Um, I think this particular example is just proof that you never really know entirely what your exposure is out in the real world. We had a partner who had an account in our environment and that account is what got breached. Wasn't any of our people, wasn't even in our infrastructure. This was sitting in a colo data center operated by somebody else on our equipment, right? Right. So in this case, we found out about it within about 15 minutes of the person gaining access using this compromised credential. We responded within the first 20 minutes and we had it completely remediated within 60 minutes. So we identified root cause, we patched the vulnerability, we dealt with the issue, and we had everything all done within that first 60 minutes. Now we spent the next month figuring out how they got in and how we're gonna prevent it from happening. Right, right. Rest it right then, right there. The big risk is, yeah, they got into a SQL box about any customer information that was used for development work, it wasn't mission critical, it wasn't important. But what if we didn't find out about it right away? They're going to parlay that to access to something else, and then the next thing, and then the next thing, and they're going to keep rolling up the chain until right. they get to something that they can use. Right. And so, as, as we kind of talked about earlier, it's not if you're going to get hit, it's when you're going to find out that you've been hit. And so having those processes in place and prioritizing those items in your technology stack and your security stack that will give you visibility and awareness to when you've been hit and to you know, your point earlier about alert fatigue, if those alerts aren't meaningful and they're not something that resonates with you with useful information, your team is just going to ignore them. And you're going to go, you know, if you're lucky days, if you're unlucky weeks or months before you find out that somebody's been poking around in the environment that shouldn't be there. All right. On that happy note, um, we will transition to some questions. Um, hopefully you guys have some. So uh, raise your hand and we'll kind of get started. Huck. So when you're talking about a risk register, like prioritizing for most critical police, are you adding some sort of probabilities for yeah, that's a great question. So yes, you do want to look at that from the perspective of how likely is someone to exploit my lack of covering this area um, and what damage could that potentially do? So I don't know that we necessarily assigned it a number. We just basically did a ranked list, right? So from worst doomsday scenario down to, you know, geez, if someone compromises my time clock on a VLAN or a network that doesn't touch anything else, I'm going to be really disappointed for about 15 minutes. You know, it's it's one of those one of those things. What impact does that have to the environment, and how am I going to respond if and when it happens? But yes, you, you do need to somewhat look at that in the guise of what's going to happen to me if if I don't do that. If I don't uh, put out MFA for HR for my HRS system for ADP, for example, and somebody's able to go in and change someone's direct deposit information for their payroll, well, now I have a big problem. Especially if they can do that across the board with lots of people. So you always have to be looking at it from the guise of What's the worst case scenario that happens if I don't implement this? And I think that speaks to Frank's point too, in terms of asset value, like what, what assets could potentially be compromised, right? And push your vendors to help you there. You obviously have to share information. They don't know what assets are valuable to you. You have to tell them that, but they can certainly give you an idea, I think of the potential broader implications of, of the risk areas. So other questions? So we typically will rate off of revenue, right? That's like the go-to standard um, factor. We can look at you know, PII, PHI accounts, how much information do you have that would lead to 
uh, what would be like a worst case scenario data breach. Um, but I don't know that there's a necessarily a way to say one individual in your asset management portfolio is worth, you know, I, I don't know that there's any way to really. I can tell you what they're worth, but how do I ensure that? <laughs> I mean, you could just um, basically allocate the premium of the policy to each individual on a percentage basis. I guess I have a follow-up question to that, which is, I think, related to it. In terms of policy limits and the amounts, is it basically yeah. how much is someone willing to pay? They can have the, I mean, if, if she wants $100,000 of coverage or she wants $3 million of coverage, is the bottom line you're happy to sell her either one as long as she pays the premium? Because in that case, you're basically handing it back to her to say, how much risk do you think you have? Right. right? That's a different, a different response. Yeah, um, we try on the underwriting side to not advise. I think there, there's you know, certain industries that are more prone, um, hospital systems, you know, that depending, again, it really depends on size, right? So if you're a $100 million enterprise, you're gonna be purchasing tens of millions of dollars of, of just cyber insurance. Um, but if you're you know, on this small, medium-sized business, you may not, may only need a million dollar policy which will cover your, your breach response, extortion costs, um, notification, you know, all that is wrapped up in that one million dollar limit. Other questions? Cameron has a question. Is it allowed, is it safe? He's not joking. No, he's joking. So is the, is the question, is the cloud safe? <laughs> Do we need to back up 365? I know there are vendors who sell products that, uh, that, that back up 365. Um, Microsoft does not back up my stuff. Um, whether they back up Satya Nadella's, maybe. Do they back up Brad Smith's? Maybe. Um, but, uh, but it's definitely a, a business decision that the loss of my email does not materially impact Microsoft's ability to do business. <laughs> so um, you may make the decision uh, to back up certain types of data for certain individuals uh, and not for others. So, so if, if someone's mailbox is on retention hold or litigation hold, um, it's, a, it's a different use case, right? So, so with, with litigation hold, you're, you're essentially hiding the ability for the user if a user tries to delete something, it looks like it's been deleted as far as they're concerned, but it's not. It, it, it's just kind of masked over. So that's not really the same as a backup, right? Because um, a backup implies the ability to restore something, um, you know, by the help desk. Litigation hold is, is a different animal, right? That, that, that's a legal function that you're performing and you're, you're holding that data for a case. Um, so it's, 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 it's a different problem you're solving. If I may. Yeah, go ahead. I'm fresh off last year, a data retention, data destruction project, because I became high through this organization. Microsoft does have a data retention policy that you can actually enact inside uh, email, Office 365 email. Now, they're very well to tell you that just because you've enacted that data, that, that Office 365 email destruction retention policy, and you may not be able to erase it from a, a container that even though the user thinks it is, they don't back it up. 
It is still up to you to back up that data, if you so choose. Now, if you don't, you better have it documented you don't, because I don't speak like an attorney, but I did sleep in Holiday Inn once time, and an attorney's gonna say, you don't have a due care model. You, you didn't actually address that process that you needed to go through to make sure that that data was there in the case I needed it. So there's a whole difference model right there of due care due diligence, but due care says I didn't even look at it. So most companies, how many companies got a data retention policy? Right. A few of you out there. Have you actually looked at it? Do you actually know what it says, what it does? I mean, I'd look at it again. I, that's something you need to look at every year. And it's a legal issue. It's not a technical issue. It's a legal issue. I'm, I'm off my soapbox. Other questions? Question for really the general panel. If I'm an SMB and I'm just starting to think about cybersecurity, where do I start? Good question. So that, that's a really great question. The, uh, the best place to start, I think, is having a conversation with the powers that be on your management team and your executive team about what's important to the organization. So identify your key assets, the key things of value to the organization that you want to protect. And then item number two on that list would be to get a third party audit. So know what's important to you. And then phase number two, get a baseline. What's my exposure? So just as I, as I stand today, if I do nothing, you know, what's my exposure? What's my risk? Once you do that, you can have a more purposeful conversation about um, items that you can use to mitigate that risk and protect those items that are that are assets to your organization. And I think it can be really overwhelming. If you think of a small business, hey, I've, I've invested my life in starting this and I don't even know where to start to make sure my customers and I am protected. And um, hiring organizations too, that you don't necessarily have to have a head in your organization, but having uh, some, some people who have some experience to say, this is the easiest way to start looking at this, and then we'll develop from there, you know, similar to the plan that you build that you say, where are our biggest areas of opportunity? Let's start there. Let's mitigate as much monetary risk as we can and then kind of fold in as you grow over time because it is changing so much that it can be overwhelming. And you know, having some third-party analytics can really assist. One of the things I think is important is being able to, before you start making a list of what you need to buy, figure out what capabilities you've got with what you already own. Um, there's so many customers that, that we talk to that will go out and buy the new shiny thing because they've read on the internet that, that, that this, is, this is the new thing. This is going to stop all malware, even zero days, even stuff that's never been in, you know, thought of yet. Before you go that route, before you start buying stuff, enlist somebody like Plow or you know, a trusted advisor to come in and say, if these are the problems you're trying to solve, you already have software that does this, this, and this. Now we need to fill in the gaps. So don't, don't overspend where you don't need to, especially in this economy, right? You need to be, be smart about what you're spending your money on. So use what you own before you start buying. I'll also say this. Um, 
depending on how formal your organization is, and I've seen startups from being just on a piece of paper to where they actually do have a board of directors. Right? Inside that board of directors, you might want to have an advisory role, board of advisors too. And I sit on several board of advisors of startup companies that are just struggling with that same question. I don't have any money. I can't spend any time on security. I'm, I'm a free resource for that particular organization when it comes into play out there. Doesn't have to be me, but somebody that can give you some advice on a startup basis that you don't necessarily have to pay. One last question. Oh, we got one. All right. What's the next thing that started out that we got to see that you wrote excited about that one so there's there's a couple things to answer your question I think that that hold a lot of promise right now so the, the big one for me um, you know especially with the you know the hybrid work from home models that a lot of folks are dealing with right now uh, personal mobile devices and, and BYOD in general um, I think is zero trust so uh, basically the ability to posture check and interrogate and gain compliance of any user or device before you allow it access to uh, sensitive information so you know, on, on the Fortinet side of the house, we're seeing that as a pivot uh, of folks moving away from things like SSL VPN and moving to a ZTNA model, a zero trust network access model, where not only do we, like we could do on um, regular VPN, where we could maybe interrogate that device on connection, we continuously check the device throughout its connection. So if anything about that device and its posture should change, we can cut off access immediately. So if you left your laptop signed in, and your kid, you know, wandered over and starts downloading something they shouldn't, and all of a sudden that device is compromised and infected, we immediately shut off its access and quarantine it away from anything that's sensitive. And of course, we can, you know, throw up all sorts of flags and alarm bells right. and alerts around that. So I think that that's option one. I think the second piece, um, you know, of, of stuff that I'm personally pretty excited about is um, honeypots are making a little bit of a comeback. Um, so we have something uh, called the 40 Deceptor. It's a, a newer product, but it's basically a virtual tripwire. Uh, we've basically combined that with some light security automation uh, tools so that um, your internal team will know that this particular device is just you know out there as a virtual tripwire. Anybody hitting that is going to be a threat actor or somebody kind of poking the envelope trying to see what's there. And once they hit that, we've got them, we can block them, we can set off alerts, all sorts of fun things around that. So that, for me, those are kind of the two things coming down the pipe that are pretty exciting. And, and I would humbly opine what, what is the problem you need to solve in your business, right? Don't just look for a shiny thing to fit it where, where it needs to go. Figure out what is the problem in your business that you want to fix and then backtrack from there, right? I mean, I agree, zero trust is fantastic, but if you've already got that implemented in, in, in some way, shape, or form, or if nobody ever works from home or whatever, you know, whatever precludes the use of that, then, then why implement it, right? So, so think about what the problems are that your that your business is facing, and and look to resolve those before you look for you know, like we were talking about the shiny object, right? Because Good your problem may, may not be email. zero trust, right? Your, your your problem may be you need a telephony system. <laughs> so you know that you're, you're chasing the wrong wrong squirrel. If I may, and I'm back on my soapbox here just a little bit. I look at regulatory. I look at states. I look at all the federal agencies, and what do they do if you have a breach? They bring out that stick and they beat you over the head. Right? I, would, I would lobby a little bit. The state of Ohio, uh, two years, three years ago, they passed legislation that if you were on the Ohio Corporation, 
and you showed them that you were adhering to a compliance or to a, uh, a framework, and they didn't care what framework was, CIS, whatever the case may be, then you were given safe harbor against class action lawsuits. Now that's a carrot. If you show me that you're doing something in the cybersecurity world and that you're doing the due care to put something in and the due diligence to support that, then if you are faced with a class action lawsuit, and that's really what we're talking about here, isn't it, lawsuits, how we prevent a lawsuit, then, then the state of Ohio said, we will give you safe harbor against that. That's something I would like to see almost every state put into play, right? On a higher level than technology though. Sure, sure. I, I was saying cyber, good cybersecurity training and testing for your employees, because I think one thing the panel did agree on was in terms of lowest cost and biggest impact, that's not shining new object, it's an old object, but it's an oldie but a goodie. Because last I checked, I don't need to ask you about your business. I know you all use email. If there's anybody that doesn't use email, I kind of want to come work for you. But I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's not the case. So um, that's a, a gray-haired guy's answer to that one. It's not, a, it's not ML or AI. It's pretty simple, but seems to have pretty big, pretty big impact. All right, that's all we've got, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, panel, thanks again for your time. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you would become a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, that would really help us out. Or you can just go old school and tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, and hell, anybody else who you think might want to hear something like this to listen in. If you're on social media, make sure to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at cuttheshit underscore pod. We are also on TikTok, at CutTheShitPod, all one word, where we post lots of clips from the podcast. And last but not least, you can also watch the YouTube version of the show on our YouTube channel, at Plow Networks. Until next time, take care and have a great day.